80%. That's the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions the buildings in New York City are required to achieve by 2050 under Local Law 97. But there is no time to waste. By 2030, they'll need to be halfway there, reducing emissions by 40%. Local Law 97 is just one of the many climate environmental initiatives that the city will implement in the years to come. From hurricanes to heat waves to flash floods, the steady drumbeat of natural crises increasingly affecting New Yorkers is making the impacts of climate change more immediate and visceral than ever before. At all levels of government, there are calls for unprecedented investments in resilience, adaptation, and the transition towards low and no carbon energy sources. Still, there are major unanswered questions. Which interventions are the most cost effective? How do we prioritize among the many huge infrastructure projects that often will take years or even decades to complete? And how do we stay flexible as the science, technology, and needs continue to evolve and change? I'm Andrew Ryan, president of the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What's the Data Point, which will again feature a recording of one of our live events. Today we hear from someone who brings a unique combination of big picture understanding and hands-on execution to, to this work. New York City's Chief Climate Officer and Commissioner of the Department of Environmental Protection, Rit Agarwala. Rit has had a long and distinguished career in sustainability and climate, including leading the creation and implementation of Plan YC, the city's first sustainability plan under Mayor Bloomberg. And his work at Bloomberg Philanthropies and Google Sidewalk Labs, among others, makes him a leading expert in his field. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. We're planning now for a new episode of What's the Data Point in the new year, and we're looking forward to having our co-host Ben Max from Gotham Gazette back with us before long. Until then, take care, New York. So thank you very much. Do you mind if we start with a little icebreaker? Because you, having done this in your second round, have a perspective to give us a little understanding and context. Is that okay? Of course. Of course. Um, I think this is. I think you started in 2006 on your first round in government, so you're 16 right. years. So you have this perspective, and we'll call the short answers to big questions. Um, and sorry for the bottles of water. I generally use the New York City tap water. I've always been a proponent of it, as you all should be. Um, um, so it's your second round, and you start in 2006. If you could briefly give us. Um, an understanding of what's the difference in two dimensions. One is the public's understanding and willingness to support mitigation and resilience projects. And the other is how has the science changed? How do we know more today than we did when you first started so that we can be more effective in our activities? Um, well, first of all, thank you, Andrew. It's, it's great to be here. And, and, and yes, I was a student of, of Professor Horton, so, uh, so I've known the CBC for, for long before it was ever something I could contemplate that CBC would invite me to speak. So it's uh, <laughs> uh, a tickled pink to be here. Um, I guess on, on both dimensions, the story is somewhat the same. Right, which is that even as much as the science was quite clear back in 2006, it is so much richer now just because there are so many more resources invested in it. Um, there has been so much, so much time has elapsed where we've seen stuff that was conjectured in 2006, sadly. So much of it is proven true. And, uh, and in fact, the, the really terrifying thing, which, you know, I'm, I'm not at the cop, but, uh, but it happens every time there's a cop, is you realize every time there are new scientific uh, outcomes, you're always at the high end of whatever was the band of uncertainty in the previous study, right? So unfortunately, we keep having to adjust upward the band of, exp of, of what's going to happen and adjust closer the band of when it's going to happen. Um, and, you know, and I will say, I, you know, just as, as we all know, a couple of weeks ago we, we celebrated or, or mourned or, or acknowledged um, the 10th anniversary of, of Hurricane Sandy. And, uh, you know, Hurricane Sandy hit us only six years after the city started talking about climate change. We were gearing up. We, we were doing, I think, all the right things. We were, we were starting to ask questions about the building code. We were getting the... New York panel on climate change ready to have official projections, whatever. We thought we had 20 years. Right? Turns out we had six. Right? And, and even we did not appreciate the urgency with which we had to operate. 
Um, and so the science is telling us over and over again, whatever you think we have to do, you have to do it more and you have to do it faster. Um, the other thing uh, though, and to ask, answer your other question is, I think happily, uh, the public's awareness has dramatically caught up. Um, maybe not caught up to where it needs to be yet, and I'll, I'll say about that, but I will say a couple of weeks ago, um, well, actually over the summer, so a few months ago now, I uh, finished a, a hearing at the city council. Um, as some of you may remember, we had a pretty spectacular um, rainfall-driven sewer collapse uh, in the Bronx in July. Um, and the council called a hearing to talk about resilience. And uh, I think 14 members of the city council showed up because it was a joint, I think, three-committee hearing and asked me questions for three hours. And afterwards, uh, somebody stopped me. I was on the other, back on, on, the, on the safe side of City Hall, and somebody asked me, <laughs> oh, how did how'd the hearing go? And I, you know, I said, oh, it was really long or whatever. But then I had to stop myself and say, you know, in 2007, I would have given my left arm to have a quarter of the city council spend three hours asking me why we couldn't do resilience faster. Right? Now, what they were asking was not always realistic. It was not always as, you know, and, and this is on me, it's not on them, but not always as well informed as we have to, to make clear what the alternatives and the trade-offs and the options are. But the sense of urgency is definitely there, um, which is a wonderful thing. Yes. <clears throat> I mean, and, and coming from a health background, understanding that we have to communicate science and then action. And what's interesting, and we'll come back to this, is you have this great vertically integrated position now. Your portfolio is a little bigger than it was in the old days. Yep. Um, and I think you speak eloquently about the need both <clears throat> at the top level to make policy and at the bottom level to actually implement. And you have that operational portfolio. And frankly, there's a feedback loop. Because if, if you don't know what's possible at the bottom level, you'll just make policy in a vacuum. So we'll come back to that because, you know, we've done a lot since Sandy, and there's a lot that's amazingly not done. The fact that there's, we can ask the question, is this a Sandy project in 2022, and is that still being funded, is something that should give us pause, mm -hmm. um, especially given the acceleration of time frame. So let's, if we can divide our conversation, we'll come back to that, talk first about um, reducing admissions, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about, you know, resiliency and adaptation project. So we need to increase generation, transmission, storage, grid stability, and we need on the demand side to change what we're purchasing and re reduce our use. And the big effort in New York City is local on 97. There was a hearing yesterday. We submitted comment on the draft regulation. For those of you who don't know local law 97, thank you for coming. Um, it, re it requires uh, large buildings to reduce emissions by 40% by 2030, 50%, 80% by 2050, and much that will be defined is in regulation. The law was, you know, pretty defined, but there's a lot and a lot of flexibility. And the city issued draft regulation uh, October 6th, and there were comments yesterday. Um, CBC's general approach is that we need to get this right to balance the incentives. The worst of this world would be that people pay fines, that building owners pay fines, we increase the cost of doing business, we don't reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and what, what have we accomplished? Um, what is the administration's approach, and tell us about these regulations, and specifically what is in there and what's more to come. Okay. Um, so, I was wondering if Local Law 97 would come up. You know. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, first of all, let me say, of course, uh, Mayor Adams and all of us in the Adams administration are 100% committed to making sure that Local Law 97 is fully implemented um, and fully enforced. Uh, as you said, nobody benefits if people pay fines, right? The only benefit is when emissions are reduced one way or another. Um, and so we have taken the approach that our goal is to ensure compliance and ensure that we are only focused on penalties insofar as that is actually necessary uh, to ensure compliance. Um, right now we are, as, as you point out yesterday, we uh, had the, the hearing on the first set of regulations. And I think one of the things I would, I would ask us to be thinking about is this law and basically everything we have to do about climate right now 
is really complex and really operational. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of my dual role, and, and it stems from conversations, you know, Kaz Holloway and, and several of the people in this room who were involved in, in the transition team uh, effort around sustainability. We all had the realization that fundamentally, climate change right now is not about policy. Climate change right now is about execution, which is why it's important for me to have the connection with a major operating agency that is on the front lines, certainly of stormwater resilience, um, and has, as, as Helena pointed out, uh, a separate source of, of funding as, as a water utility. Um, and Local on 97 is no different, right? The policy was set a couple of years ago. Now we've got to figure out how to make it work. And there's a lot of intricate detail. And I will say, we're probably going to get some of it wrong, right? One of the, one of the best parts of Local on 97 is it comes in two phases. It comes in the first phase, the first compliance period, which is a relatively small number of buildings asked to do a relatively small reduction. It's an opportunity for us to figure out how to get this right in preparation for the 2030 compliance period, which is what matters most. Um, so what we have been, uh, we have been taking the perspective that we have to focus, number one, on getting the basic rules out there. And so that is what we did with this first set of rules that were, uh, that were heard yesterday. It sets things that are, in many ways, um, based on the work of, of the advisory board that has been assisting the Department of Buildings, relatively consensus-based. A lot of things around the carbon coefficients that go into calculating what the building limits are. As you know, there was a recalibration um, that was envisioned in the law that did have the impact of, of setting a higher bar, a more ambitious set of targets for office buildings, um, because we decided that that it was out of balance um, and it did address some of the issues that had been raised over the last couple of years about how the limits affected particular building categories like supermarkets and, and, and other subsectors. Um, it also clarified, and, and I know this has gotten a ton of airtime, uh, the role of renewable energy credits. Um, and what I, when I say that by clarified, there are a number of, of people out there, including a number of city council members, who have asked us, who have said that we need to limit the use of, of RECs. Uh, the law is very clear that RECs are a compliance mechanism. Um, we believe we have clarified the fact that RECs are always understood to offset electricity and never understood to offset other kinds of generation because it's illogical um, to say that you could offset natural gas combusted in your building with, with clean energy that you purchased, or clean electricity that you purchased. But we are not actually at all convinced that the law allows the city to do that by regulation. Um, our next set of rules, uh, which we expect to have out within, you know, ideally by the end of the year, but, um, you know, we are working very hard on, on all of it, will get to the actual mechanism for how uh, how penalties will be assessed, how um, disputes will be adjudicated, and importantly, how this concept of the good faith effort, which is written into the <coughs> law, will be applied. And I will say a number of people have interpreted our focus on using the good faith effort as a way to let building owners get out of complying with the law, which, you know, again, people can interpret whatever they wish, but is never something that we've said. The point that we have made over and over and over again is that what the law envisions, the way we understand it, is that building owners who are genuinely doing everything they can and are still falling short of their targets do not need to be assessed the full penalty. Um, and that is what we intend to do. But I think it's really important that everybody understand that certainly from my perspective, there is no scenario in which sitting around and hoping the law goes away is a good faith effort. There is no scenario in which saying, well, we're going to do the lobby instead of doing our retrofit is a good faith effort, right? Good faith effort is going to have a high bar, and any building owner right now who thinks that they're going to get away with a good faith effort claim but is not right now in 2022 doing a lot of work is going to be, I think, very sorely disappointed. And so I, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was going to Rex next. So you've taken care of, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I was going to say. But just so I understand, you clarified where RECs can apply. The calls for saying it should be, for example, 30% of, of compliance. You're saying the law does not, you, you're, the administration's interpretation is that's not allowable. 
um, with unregulation, you, you uh, can't do that. It, it, uh, we had called for expanding the use of RECs. Obviously, right. there's move to limit them. You de facto, in your definition, have um, cordoned off part of uh, part of what's necessary. But you're saying you actually don't have the legal we, authority. We, the way I read the law, I think it's pretty clear um, that that will require a legislative stress. And in the good faith effort, so two things in terms of next. You're going to do good faith effort, which is you know, as when we looked at this, we saw small buildings or medium-sized buildings far out of compliance. This is pretty hard stuff, especially, you know, the, I get the calls from the co-op owner saying, I don't know, I'm on my co-op board, you know, I, I'm looking around, I'm sure people are going to nod because everyone's figuring this out. Um, in the good faith effort um, definition, is there any flexibility on how RECs would apply there if, if they were um, used to offset some of the non-electric um, Purchasing stuff, or there's not I, in, I, at all. I, you know, I think we're pretty clear that okay. Rex should offset electricity consumption, oh, and that's how it is. Will you also be addressing what CBC and others have called the density penalty? For those of you who don't know, it like makes more sense to have two thousand people in two buildings than one building, which it doesn't, and I don't think anybody's arguing that it does. But there's a de facto density penalty. Yeah. So the law, as as you and I think many of the people in the room appreciate, the law sets the carbon uh, limits based on square footage. Right. And yes, it stands to reason that a building that is heavily utilized should have the quote unquote right to emit more carbon than a building that is not. Uh, there are a number of challenges, though, and and this is where I, I you know continue to point out the devil's going to be in the details. The devil's in how you operationalize this stuff. So, for example. Very few office buildings actually have data for how occupied they are, mm -hmm. right? And so until there, there is no legitimate way to claim that, well, my building used a lot of energy because it's heavily occupied based on the fact that, well, we issued an awful lot of badges, right? Or particularly in a post-pandemic world, we've got a lot of desks, right? In a world in which we have right now 50% occupancy, the density argument rings a little bit hollow. And we had a real experience with this where for you know, well over a year, as we know, office occupancy in New York went pretty much to zero. And energy consumption in the commercial building sector went down by eh, single digits. Right? So the idea that, that occupancy and energy consumption are necessarily correlated is not proven. So as the law envisions, we have kicked off a study um, that will understand how density could be factored in. I think when density is really a driver of, of energy and we can see that, that elasticity um, and, and building owners can demonstrate, uh, then I think it would be appropriate to factor in density. I do not believe that it's just a question of how many desks you've crammed in or, uh, or, or, um, or how many badges you've, you've issued. Thanks. There's I appreciate the logical approach in studying it, and that is, as you say, with the two compliance periods, allowing and, you. And, and I'll, I'll reiterate this point that, you know, as, and I've been saying this to everyone who will listen, and starting with my first council hearing on this back in the spring, which is we are really focused on the first two years right now. Right? We are really focused on getting the framework so that it functions um, for 2024 and 2025. It's one of the reasons that you know, frankly, we think we should be taking time to understand the RECs issue. Um, there just aren't going to be a lot of RECs in the market in 2024 and 2025. The first year that, that RECs could be a significant issue in terms of the way buildings comply is 26 at best, most likely 27, which means we have time. And the same thing is true. There, there are some buildings that are going to get penalized um, in the 24 compliance period due to at least what based on their numbers, they say is a, a density uh, penalty, it's a relatively small group of buildings, right? So we have time to get this right. Thank you. So let's turn to resiliency uh, and, and adaptation. There is a dizzying array of potential projects, of, of, of uh, strategies. I'm looking at East Side Coastal Resiliency, uh, Lower Manhattan, Brooklyn Bridge, Montgomery, Breezy Point, Adapt, you know, Adapt NYC, Rainfall Ready NYC. It's, it's a lot of different options. Um, and it's dizzying in its breadth, its cost, its implications on the economy, its distributional impacts. Can you help us first, at the higher level, understand what are the criteria? How do you determine priorities? 
the, 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 it's almost limitless, and from a CBC perspective, almost budget limitless, what could be done and people's desires, but we can't do it all. How do you set priorities in this area? Um, well, look, I, I, don't, I don't yet have an answer to that, um, which is one of our challenges. So I think one of, as, as we look back on the, the last 10 years, I think one of the problems with the way the city has handled resilience is it has been very focused on projects. Um, and that means that we've lost sight of the overall strategy. We don't have any standards, you know. I mean, you, when, it, when it comes to carbon emissions, first of all, we've been doing this. We've had quantitative ways to measure our ca carbon emissions since our first carbon inventory in 2007. <clears throat> um, and that gives you a, a path. Uh, it, it allows you to understand what's important when you can, can put numbers on things. As our old boss used to say, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And one of our problems is we haven't developed the language to measure risk and, and resilience in a consistent way, in part because it's far more about people. Um, you know, how do you make the trade-off between a place where somebody might die from flooding once every 50 years versus somebody might lose a lot of money because their basement gets flooded once every five years? How do you put that in an apples to apples? That gets into the realm of public health, right? More than, more than um, environmental policy. Uh, how do you think about the relative importance of storm surge, rain, storm water, Heat, which is, of course, the main killer. We have to remember every time we think about resilience that climate change-driven heat waves have killed six times as many New Yorkers over the last decade as flooding has. Um, and that's even more weighted to low-income New Yorkers than, than flooding deaths. Uh, and, and as you say, the breath. So I think one of the things that, that I am really focused on is ensuring that we develop that language, that... that, uh, that, that um, quantification that allows us to take stock of all of these at the same time and put some relative prioritization on it. I don't think we have that right now. Um, certainly within DEP, we have started an effort. We started talking about this uh, on September 1st at the, at the anniversary of, of Hurricane Ida, um, focused on stormwater where we've laid out the vision for how we think we can, we can manage extreme stormwater over time. It is a mix of, of grain and green infrastructure. Now what we have to do is start doing the plans. Um, but much like with Local on 97, it's very easy to elaborate the vision. Uh, it's even relatively easy to demonstrate that, oh, you know, the, gray infra the green infrastructure works, right? That's fine. It takes a lot longer to do 50 drainage studies across all of New York City. Um, we are right now working on a citywide analysis to figure out what a citywide strategy for blue belts might be. How does that relate to a potential buyout strategy that people are clamoring for to get bought out of particularly homes that are frequently going to flood? But then, as you say, then there's the question of how are we going to pay for it? And I, and I think much like with carbon emissions reductions, we have not reconciled ourselves to what, it, what different levels of protection will actually cost. Um, I think that's going to be one of our biggest challenges over the next couple of years is, is having that conversation um, because it's going to be quite direct. And I, I think people have the sense that, well, the bipartisan infrastructure law will pay for it or the Environmental Bond Act will pay for it or whatever. You add up those numbers and it's peanuts compared to what's it's, what it's actually going to cost. We have to be honest with ourselves. The people who are going to pay for New York being resilient are the people who live and work in New York City. Um, and so we've got we've to decide what that means. Yes, and one of the challenges without, and one of the most interesting, I won't say heated, but um, energetic discussions among one of our research committees was about um, the Bond Act and, and thinking about we don't actually have a needs assessment. We actually don't have a plan. We looked at the draft scoping plan of the Climate Action Council, and they're going to have a <clears throat> final scoping plan. There's really no prioritization, no plan, no cost effectiveness. The challenge is that we have to keep investing, and we don't know that we're investing in the right things in the right way at the right times. Um, as, as you say, and I, and I mean, people might have different opinions about it. I, I agree. It's going to be a lot, and we don't know. The challenge is if we don't prioritize that, the chance that we spend our money that we're spending over the next two years wisely goes down. Well, and there, there's, of course, the, the, the trade-off of how much time do you want to spend studying versus you know, continuing to be at risk, right? And, 
you know, I think we've seen that over the last couple of weeks. You know, as, as you may know, uh, we put out Adapt NYC. It was in response to a council law that had been enacted last November. Um, we were criticized for it not being a full plan. Now, I will point out the council enacted a law in November knowing that a change in council and change in administration was coming, saying that there was going to be a citywide resilience strategy by September. You don't have that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. That was kind of unrealistic. So we did a, a good faith effort, to coin a phrase, on, on getting a good portion of that out. There is also a, a significant sense that I think we embrace that because of the way resilience is going to affect how neighborhoods look and feel, You've got to do a lot of neighborhood engagement. You can't do that kind of neighborhood engagement to develop a citywide strategy in 10 months. Like, it's just not practical. So that's where Mayor, Mayor Adams, uh, uh, on the Sandy anniversary week, announced Climate Strong Communities, which will be our effort to, to make use of the information that was developed, the multi-hazard analysis, that we now have a tool that can identify and lay out to members of a, of a neighborhood, of a community board, of whatever kind of association, what risks their neighborhood is likely to face, and then have a thoughtful conversation about what the tools that would fit best with that neighborhood um, would be. And that's something that, that we will need to do. Um, but at the, at the same time, it also, and, and you mentioned rainfall already uh, when you're describing things, it also means we've got to be thinking on two tracks. We've got to think about how we fix this situation over the long term, but also how we protect ourselves in the short term while those longer term fixes are, are coming. And, and to the point, you know, rainfall already, I described it, I will confess our city hall comms people really didn't like it when I called it a bandage, so, so I'm going to call <laughs> it a, a stopgap. <laughs> um, they said that was better. Um, but, you know, my point was it's something that it, it protects us while the healing goes on, right? That's what a Band-Aid is. It right. protects you while the healing goes on. We have, to, we have to do what we can to keep people from dying when there is a rainstorm. Right. Um, we have to do what we can to reduce property damage when there is a rainstorm while we engage in the year or two of studies and the five, 10, or 20 years of construction it'll take right. to reconstruct the city to deal with the kind of rainfall that we are experiencing. So in your mind, do you, that year or two, do you have a time frame for coming up with a more comprehensive plan or you're, you're not in that place? Well, you know, one thing I, I will point out, you know, um, the, the next version of what I still think of as yes, Plan YC, plan YC. Is, uh, is due out in April. We are hard at work, and I think next April 22nd we will have a, a lot to say. Okay, that sounds wonderful. April 22nd, I got, I got that. Now, you know, as you say, we're, you know, the city's going to pay for it, but we have the IAJA, the IRA, um, we have the HAT study, we have the Climate Action Council. How do you integrate with the federal and the state on this, and is the HAT study going to drive? And you first, when we first talked about this, you said, "Pay attention. This might be driving some of our conversation." Is this going to change where we're going? I, I think the HAT study is is actually the Harbor and Tributary Study. Sorry yeah, so, for the acronym. So suit. for the for the background, this is what the Army Corps of Engineers is doing. It was actually uh, mandated by Congress in the multi-year aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. I forget what year. Um, for perhaps obvious reasons, the Trump administration uh, spitefully put it on hold. Um, it got restarted with the advent of the, the Biden administration, and now it is out for public comment. Um, you know, this is for really the, the, the first time since the SIRR that was done in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, the first time we've looked at the whole city and, in fact, the whole region, because, of course, it's the Army Corps. It includes the New Jersey side of the harbor. Um, we love New Jersey. Hey, we do. Um, and, uh, and looks at, at what the different levels of protection might be. Now, we are certainly giving it a, a, a deep read at the city. It's a 600-page document. Um, we will have comments that the city puts forward. We're very interested in comments that the public uh, responds to. Of course, at the end of the day, like every Army Corps plan, um, the fundamental question is going to be whether it gets funded. And at $51 billion, this will be far and away the most expensive thing the Army Corps has ever envisioned doing. Um, and it is probably still a first step. I mean, the designs, uh, it's a relatively unappreciated fact. The Army Corps did not set out to design the defenses for New York forever. It's got a 50-year design life, um, which means that 20 years from now, we're probably going to be back you know, while we're still finishing construction on this, 
we're going to have to start figuring out what comes after 2090. Um, but this is, and I, I said it actually a lot on the Sandy anniversary, that we need to reconcile with the fact that all of us who are alive, if you are an urban fellow, like anybody working today is going to spend the rest of their careers dealing with resilience because we are never going to be done with this. It's like education. You don't ask, when are we done with the Department of Education? No, you know, it's just an ongoing thing. Um, and I think we need to remember that resilience is going to be like that. And, you know, we have to keep thinking about how to fund these things and that there are trade-offs, which is in, in part why CBC always talks about efficiencies because, you know, running things efficiently gives you your best shot. And when we're going to be in a budget situation saying, fund this, education, Medicaid, I'm thinking about the state budget coming up, let alone the city budget, which is, of course, we're going to see a modification soon and see what's going on in there. But let's turn to your, your uh, it's all your day job, your operational job at, at DEP. Um, when I was at the health department, my fourth year, I found that the health department regulates the runoff from um, car washes. You learn something new every day. What's the one thing you've learned about DEP that shocked you that you didn't know walking in? Uh, wow. There's an awful lot because it is a crazy big agency. I mean, DEP, of course, is the, the water and sewer utility for New York. We have 5,200 employees. We should, by the way, have 6,200 employees, but we can 15% vacancy rate, yeah. just saying. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, of course, we also enforce the air noise and, and hazmat codes in the city. Um, so there's a lot that I have learned. I will say that the most interesting thing that I had not fully appreciated, although I think Kaz probably uh, knew, um, is the bank shot risk that New York City faces from climate change, um, which I had not appreciated, which is the Delaware River. So as you know, we get 50% of our drinking water from the Delaware River Valley. Um, among the other people who drink Delaware River water are, for example, half the state of New Jersey, the entire city of Philadelphia, most of the state of Delaware. Um, and one of the things that is happening with sea level rise or with climate change is that as the sea level rises, salt water is pushing further and further up the Delaware River, which means that there's a bit of a zero-sum game among those of us who draw drinking water out of the Delaware. Um, and uh, over the long term, that is a real threat to just how much water New York City can pull um, from that, uh, that part of, of our water supply. Um, so it's something that I've now been talking to my counterparts in Philadelphia, to the, the relevant uh, commissioners and secretaries in the various states. We're actually going to have a principals level meeting in January for the first time in years to start talking about the extent to which it's a, it's a classic prisoner's dilemma we could treat it as, oh, let's figure out how to screw the other guy and just keep as much of the, the draw for ourselves, or we could treat it as a shared problem. And as we all know from, from game theory, it's only when you trust each other and treat it as a shared problem that you win. Well, best of luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we're going to open up for questions in a second, but one last question. I know you're, you understand the operations of government um, improving those are, are key, to, key to success. Tell us just quickly about your efforts to improve capital planning, execution, procurement in the department. Well, DEP, so I mean, I, I will say I, I um, you know, I came into this job obviously with a pretty deep background in climate policy, certainly the largest managerial role I've ever had, um, and I am loving every minute of it. DEP is a massive business. I mean, I haven't actually looked to see whether we'd be Fortune 1000 or, or what, but we have $3.7 billion in revenue. Um, so we have to think about running DEP as a business might not be the right way to think about it, but as a, as a utility and a large enterprise. Um, so we're, we're working on a number of fronts. The first thing was actually stabilizing the workforce. We had terrible morale issues. Um, we were hemorrhaging people. Um, the good news is that has dropped off. We've done a lot. Um, I did a morale survey, did have done some, some of the small things that is all of you who work in large organizations know. There's a, a number of small things that can actually change the way people feel about their organization, and I think we're making a lot of progress on that score. Um, certainly working on procurement, there's both, as, as many of you know, a citywide effort that the mayor and the controller are leading, but within DEP, we're actually doing a great deal to dramatically reduce our procurement time, which it turns out was also a real driver of low morale, because as you might imagine, people who make the decision to stay in city government, they do so because 
they, they care about the mission. They want to get stuff done. And if I need to buy something or procure a consulting project or procure construction work, and it's going to take me two or three years before I ever see any of that happen, that's a killer on morale. Of course, you'd rather like go leave and, and do something else. So we've been working on that. We have an accounts receivable issue that's a hangover of the pandemic. Um, and we've got to get that under control in order to justify what will inevitably be a rate hike. I mean, in an inflationary economy, we've got to manage the way that we um, manage the water rates and, and responsibly steward the system. And in order to do that, you know, on, under the de Blasio administration, DEP went six years with zero rate hikes, right? So we let the water rate decline in real terms, um, and we are catching up. Thankfully, Mayor Adams understood that that was a bad idea. He, he endorsed and, and the Water Board enacted a 4.9% rate hike back in May. Um, so we're getting back towards, um, I think, a responsible management of, of our revenue. But inevitably, if you raise rates a 0% in a 1% economy, you get a lot less attention than if you raise rates 5% in a 6% inflation economy. Um, and I know that, and so one of the things we are doing is we're embarking on a strategic planning effort that, among other things, will allow us to understand how efficient DEP is compared to peers. We do very little actual benchmarking in terms of, you know, cost per gallon treated or, you know, whatever, however we, we want to think about it. We've got to develop this language, again, going back to the if you can't manage, you can't measure it, you can't manage it. We've got to be able to justify our expense budget, and then we've got to be able to explain to the people of New York what they're going to get when a 25, currently it's a $25 billion 10-year capital plan, what do we get for that? Especially if we want more, and we're going to need more, especially if we're going to have a significant effort on resilience. Um, and so we've got to be able to explain where that comes from. And so I'm very excited about doing that strategic planning effort over the next year. Yeah, no, and what's good about all the efforts from procurement turnaround times to, um, you know, <laughs> A number of things you said they're all measurable um, if we can ever help performance management is one of the things we do one of the things I've done in terms of both having the right data and the right process because as we know data sitting on a shelf doesn't really actually change anything yep. so I wish you wish you luck with that we're gonna open up for questions I'm gonna ask Cass Holloway who, who, who was former commissioner to facilitate the trustee questions. He's younger, better looking, has better eyes. And since I didn't do so well last time at calling people, Kaz, why don't you come up and, 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 and facilitate the questions? You can talk about this mic right here, standing up. There, there you go. Um, so if people have questions, please raise your hand, and, and, and Kaz, uh, our, our, our trustee and friend, will, will help facilitate. Thank you. Uh, I will take questions. The first thing, though, I do want to say is I am the president of a 22-unit building co-op, and um, instead of doing a full expansion of our roof deck, we are putting solar in. So my best efforts application job. is just about ready. Good job. Right. Um, so, uh, Red, thank you. Thank you, um, Andrew. This has been uh, a great introduction, and you have your work cut out for you, Red. But let's open it up to questions. Walter. Okay. I think you do have your hands full, and uh, I appreciate some of your talent being there. Um, there's a reasonable concern that some of the things we're doing to reduce emissions, such as not allowing natural gas line pipelines through the state, closing peaker plants, may have a negative effect in several ways. One is you may wind up with, as many parts of the country did, <coughs> using dirtier fuels as an interim step. If you, it, and also, you may wind up with peak supply problems. How do you balance the two? Um, well, it's a, it's a good question. And as with many of the things as we were discussing, um, we've got to think carefully about trade-offs. Um, at the same time, I mean, one of the things that I am certainly cognizant of, and, and anybody involved with CBC understands as well, capital investments create a long-term logic of their own. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I do think we have to really avoid is making investments in long-lived assets that are going to perpetuate uh, things that we, we cannot accept. Like, we just cannot accept fossil fuel combustion in buildings in 2050. And so anybody who is making a decision right now for a capital project that has a 25 or a capital asset that has a 25-year life or not should not be investing in fossil fuels, right? And so by and large, like, yes, there may be some tactical exceptions 
But by and large, the era of investing in, in conveying or combusting more fossil fuels is over and should be over. Next, and if you don't mind just stating your name once you get the microphone. Hi, Darcy Stakem. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. It's very important for all of us. Um, I'd like to just offer that under Local Law 97, as you look at these landlords, quote unquote, you have to understand that many of them are actually pension systems that are behind in many ways the investments. The typical landlord only owns two to 5% of these major office buildings here in the city. Many of them with work from home are finding that they're losing their tenants and I think you're gonna be mostly negotiating with lenders mm -hmm. in terms of who's paying these fines and getting this work done. So I think it's a much deeper, wider conversation that needs to occur on how to get this done. I don't think the average landlord doesn't wanna do it. They just don't know who's gonna fund it because their lender doesn't wanna fund it and their investors are saying, cram me down. I'm not writing another check. Right. So sorry, just wanted to make the comment. Now look, I, I think your point, um, and I don't have anything specific to say in response to that, but I, I think the point that you're making, which is um, it's, it's very easy, it's very easy to think that there's an easy answer to a complicated problem, right? And that is one of the issues when it comes to, uh, you know, writing, writing the actual regulations and actually implementing Local on 97. I really don't think we understand how it's going to play out. I think you, you can listen to a lot of people who think that all buildings are owned by rich people, right? And they don't appreciate how much the housing stock and particularly how much of the housing stock that's gonna be deeply affected by local on 97 is genuinely like middle-class co-ops in Queens that have a highly dysfunctional board, right? Kaz's board is obviously very functional because I'm sure he runs it. But, um, but you know, we've got that, we've got synagogues, we've got churches, we've got all sorts of different building types. And I think we're gonna learn a ton, which is one of the reasons, again, that the idea that every problem is solved if you just come down hard on people on day one, I, I think you're kidding yourself, right? We're gonna learn a lot, and we've gotta understand that this is a multi-year, multi-step game. But thank you. In the back of the room there, in the back corner, sir. Uh, Peter Hine. Um, I assume, and this is a question, that New York City is much more energy efficient with mass transit and density than much of the rest of the country. And assuming that's the case, has there been any analysis as to whether the costs of Local Law 97, to the extent they push people and companies out of the city, could actually be counterproductive by driving people to less energy efficient parts of the country? Um, thank you. I think that's, it's a, it's a reasonable kind of question to ask. I think though, uh, so no, I don't know of any analysis that, that's looked at that. Um, I will say I think it's very difficult to um, imagine how you would actually ascribe a loss of business or residence to a particular law, I mean, especially right now when so much is changing in both the macro economy and then the office environment, um, I think it would be highly academic um, to do that. But I also think one of the challenges that we face, and, and, and it is true, New York is more energy efficient than average. One of the things I'm certainly appreciating is that actually getting New York the rest of the way may actually be much harder than for the rest of the country. I think among the things we've got to watch for, and, and by the way, I'll, I may take this opportunity to go on a bit of a tangent that you can probably see coming, Andrew, given some of our conversations, but as you look at what the state is gearing up, um, now that everybody in Albany knows who their boss is gonna be, um, to fulfill the governor's promise to green two million homes by 2030. I'm very worried that the state's gonna decide that it's much easier to green single-family homes in Westchester and in Erie County than it is to tackle the difficult challenge of even single-family homes in, in Southeast Queens and Staten Island, right? Which on average are more difficult to deal with than upstate or truly suburban environments. So I'm not sure that actually it's, it's gonna be as cut and dried as that uh, suggests. There's no question that if things are static, we'd much rather have people living in New York City. 
I think 20 years from now, we may lose our edge, actually, because if you think about a single-family home in a suburban neighborhood, if you need to go carbon neutral, like once you get solar on your roof, a battery in your basement, an electric car in your garage, you've done most of your job. Like you and I, if we live in an apartment building and we've got to deal with our PTAC unit or, our, or the Con Ed steam system or, or the fossil fuel boiler in our basement and all sorts of other things, it's actually a much more difficult transition. Um, uh, thank you. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Marcos Diaz-Gonzalez with STV. I'm actually going to wear two hats for this question. I'm also the board chair of the Gowanus Canal Conservancy. So my question uh, for you is, uh, what other policies uh, is DEP considering to basically strengthen that triangular relationship between applicable policy, right, and, and sort of good thinking, long-range good thinking about uh, resiliency, um, engineering, ingenuity and innovation, and then the uh, stewardship that can be provided by community-based organizations. And I'm asking specifically about potentially long-range uh, management and planning uh, for you know, green uh, infrastructure, <coughs> blue infrastructure that is community-based. You mentioned before a big emphasis over the last several years on projects um, and the need to actually get community buy-in. Uh, I would like to ask you what you know you may be thinking about being able to reinforce that relationship between uh, policy, engineering, and community-based organizations, and how can we actually leverage uh, that three-part uh, to make long-range uh, you know improvements? Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, well, thanks, Marco. I think that's a uh, look. One of the things that I think is going to happen as we shift more and more to green infrastructure, and, and I think this informs your question is that it becomes much more visible, right? The reality is most New Yorkers, you know, every, I'm proud to say about DEP, Kaz knows this very well, we are literally the one agency New York City cannot go a day without, right? Um, and every New Yorker has used our product by 9 a.m. Um, but virtually no New Yorker has thought about us over the course of an entire week. Uh, that will change the more we invest in green infrastructure because we will be more and more visible, right? And in contrast, every New Yorker has thought something usually negative about our colleagues at DOT by 9 a.m., right? <laughs> Certainly the MTA. Uh, not always deserved, by the way. But uh, um, so as we become more invested in green infrastructure, I think we'll be much more visible. Uh, one of the things that we did realize over the course of the pandemic was that the maintenance of our rain gardens had fallen apart quite frankly. Um, some of that had to do with hiring freezes that were put in place during, during the height of the pandemic. Um, but when I came in, we got a lot of complaints about the state of our, our rain gardens. Um, we addressed that a little bit with some kind of short-term hiring of, over the summer. Um, but I am beginning to think about how we would, in, in very much the way the Parks Department does, how we would engage with communities on a stewardship basis because some of those things become real community assets on our very visible. Um, so I don't have a, a clear answer. Part of it for us is I'm still very much feeling like we've got a lot of internal thinking and planning to do before we can have an informed conversation with a wide range of community partners. And I think we have time for one more question, if that's okay. Yeah, I think, by the way, that the, uh, the connection with the Parks Department there is a great idea. Uh, Speaking of someone who worked at Parks? As a former Parky and a former DP, but seriously. Um, yes, final question. Thank you. Good morning. Lynn Kelly, New York Restoration Project. And I'll preface my question, but the last time I was in front of Kaz Holloway, I was asking for $2 billion for Coney Island, so I promise this will be an easier question for you, Commissioner. Um, what struck me is just the length of time many of these projects take and the number of administrations that they go through. So what would you recommend to us as just putting our public hat on? that we can do to ensure the momentum on these projects, that they don't change from administration to administration? Uh, that's a really good question. Thank you. Um, and, and much easier than the $2 billion one. Uh, I, I, I think uh, you know, some of it is about just having, the, having that, that vision and strategy that is well understood and well bought into. Um, and so I think the more, that, uh, the more that the civic community in New York um, and, and we've not been as aggressive in, in reaching out to the civic community yet because we've got a lot of work to do internally and frankly we are 
slowed down a little bit on, on a lot of it by our, our understaffing. Um, but I think there will be an opportunity probably next year with the new plan YC and with some of the other things that we are, we are working towards uh, to kind of reach, you never reach consensus in New York, but reach a certain amount of consensus about some of those priorities. Um, and I think that is the kind of thing that gives, gives a set of projects staying power. Um, you know, in fairness, for all of the changes from the Bloomberg administration to the de Blasio administration to the Adams administration, nobody's wavered on Esker. Nobody's wavered on many of the big projects, right? So I don't think in the resilience world we've seen actually the kind of back and forth that you might argue we've seen in, on some other aspects of city policy. Um, I think we need to double down on that. I think we need to make sure that it's not just a handful of coastal resilience projects that, that have billions behind them that have that kind of staying power, that it's around a cooling strategy, that it's around a stormwater strategy, that's around a funding mechanism. We've got to do all of that. And then I think some of it is also, um, and I'll just, I'm going to take the opportunity to, to say the other thing that I would love the civic community to help us do, is make sure that New York City gets its fair share. There is a lot of money out there, um, a lot of money that the state, I mean, people do not appreciate that the majority of all of the federal money that between the infrastructure bill and the IRA, much of that is going to be done through competitive state grants. We just approved a $4 billion uh, environmental bond act. I implore you to hold the state responsible for ensuring that New York City is 47% of the population, 62% of the tax base, and make sure that we get our fair share. And I will leave you with the point that just last week, on Monday, not sure what was happening last week at the state level, but Monday it turns out they issued a whole set of grants for a $225 million pot of clean water money. State revenue, not federally funded. We applied for, oh, coincidentally, $112.5 million. We were granted $6.5 million. Two point something percent of the pot for 40 something percent of the population because it turns out there's a state law that gives a cap of $10 million per municipality on that program. There's no New York City assembly member or senator I've mentioned this to who knows that that state law is there, right? But that is the kind of thing that we have got to tackle to make sure that New York City gets anything close to its fair share of all of that money. Well, with that, I want to. Thank you very much, uh, Commissioner-in-Chief. Thank you.